the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. Hello. Hey, Lindsay. How are you? I'm very excited about this movie. I am too. Uh, So we're dipping into the 90s here with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's third feature film, Magnolia. Yeah. This is one of my favorite three-hour endeavors. This is, this yeah, it's it's, it's a lengthy movie and... uh, But don't let that intimidate yeah, you at uh, all it, it can be and this is a uh, i'll immediately say the first time i saw this movie which was when it came out in the theaters i i can't say that i was a fan of it is that right yeah and i actually i would i, I feel the same way about most paul thomas anderson movies and then inevitably end up loving them and yeah uh really boogie nights and magnolia i love both of these movies now yeah um upon recent viewings but i think his movies are ones and, you know, and the argument could be made. It's just like if you got to see a movie a second time to like it, it's not doing its job. But I learn more yeah. and more. That, you know, there's movies that are like that for me, and I'm sure that it's got to be for other people as well. Most of my favorite movies have been ones that I grew to love after multiple viewings. I feel like Punch Drunk Love was the one that most people right out, like right off the bat, really loved. Yeah, and that's one of his, I think, that's it's his most quirky, and it's 90 minutes so it doesn't have like an <laughs> intimidating running time. Yeah. One thing I will say about Magnolia, though, is that for as long as it is, I've watched it so many times in the past two weeks and it, it moves along so quickly. And, and, you know, we've done when we did Casino, that's another three hour movie. That movie also moves along at a quick pace. But this one, there's just so much going on that I feel like I'm always seeing something new when I watch it. Yeah, this movie to me was very much like uh, watching All the President's Men. Like, there's just so many characters. It takes like a first watch for me just so that the second time I'm like, okay, I know who all these people are and how their relationships are connected. One thing when people talk about this movie, it always seems daunting or overwhelming or like it's hard to understand. But... I've never found this movie in and, and, and by people we're saying most of what we what we read that people write on IMDb. Yeah. Yeah, like what either or or I mean people that I've like talked to, like I do definitely do know some people that really like this movie. And I've also known some people that, that don't appreciate this movie. As a overall consensus, it's always felt like it's so involved or or just confusing, but really I don't I've never found this movie to be confusing. Because it is very much a, a straightforward story. And we'll, of course, get into that. I do think that there is one section of this movie that is confusing, and we will talk about that because yes. there was an there was a an, character omission. That, an omission, a character that was cut, who is connected to some of the other characters. And I think without that information given, um, it does make a few sections of the movies um, not unforgivable, but a little... Yeah confusing for this discussion this is definitely a movie i think that is up there on a list of movies that have been analyzed i mean this movie came out 20 years ago a lot of essays written on this movie a lot of discussions have been had on this movie and what things represent and by analysis i'm definitely talking more about 
people's interpretations of something. We certainly do that a little bit on the show, but for this movie, because there's so much analysis on this film already, we kind of want to talk about it from more of like a factual standpoint and uh, some of the making of the movie, uh, like we talked about, like a character was omitted. Um, and then what Paul Thomas Anderson put into the movie, you know, that we pulled from any interviews from him on uh, why he did certain things. And then certainly, you know, a little bit about what we got out of it, but I didn't want this to be so much like uh, analyzing the film. What's from... the meaning behind exactly, this, yeah. man? Yeah, which, you know, it's fun to do yeah, and it's fun to talk about, but we wanted this to not go in that direction so much because otherwise this podcast episode would be longer than the actual film. Just to hit on a couple of things I know we just said, but um, we will talk about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, a little bit about his career, talk about the making of Magnolia, mm-hmm. um, also themes. Lots, themes, of themes, lots of themes in this movie. We'll talk about the cast quite a bit. A lot of cast members that had come back from Boogie Nights, Boogie Nights and uh, Heart, Heart Eight, Eight, but then also the new actors that were incorporated into Paul Thomas Anderson's crew um, and what they brought to the movie. Probably hit on some of the aesthetic and style, I would imagine, of, of Paul Thomas Anderson and kind of, uh, you know, things that he's carried throughout his or what he's known for in, in his films. Well, speaking of Paul Thomas Anderson and his earlier films, that uh, leads me to my pick of the week, oh. which was uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's first feature film, also starring... Uh, one of his uh, casts that he uses in a lot of his movies, Philip Baker Hall, and that was the movie Heart Eight. I can't wait for you to talk about that one. And what was you went for a non Paul Thomas Anderson movie, but also a uh, like a intertwined yeah. kind it, of story in, it, or multiple stories interconnected. Multiple stories, um, not necessarily all interconnected, but all connecting to one person who's experiencing multiple people's stories, and also features coincidentally uh three actors from magnolia um and that being this independent movie from 97 called chicago cab i haven't seen that in a long long time Mm -hmm. didn't it also go underneath the title called 3 a.m as well at some point hell cab hell cab that was the other name of it yeah um i'm looking forward to that i gotta rewatch that movie i should ask you to i meant to bring it over tonight i'm so sorry i meant to bring it over tonight actually so our We'll do our picks of the week after uh, Magnolia, and then, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. Before we get into that, before we get into our first clip of Magnolia, could you sort of, if you can, <laughs> this, is, this is a tough one to do a summary for because it's just so involved, and, you know, maybe we'll go into we'll go into the characters a little yeah, bit more sure. when we do the cast, but if you can just sort of somewhat give, like, a short description of what this movie's about. I would say this movie is a very intricately woven tapestry of interconnected characters that all kind of stem off um, or around a quiz show. The the quiz show is not the, the main focus, but somehow they're all related to this and two families stemming off from this that have to deal with either issues of death, loneliness, failure, regret, and all of this happening in the span of one day. You kind of lose track of time, the fact that it is all happening in one day, but it is this snapshot of just this moment in time of things happening at a almost breakneck, erratic pace and all kind of coming to a head for an ultimate climax with some type of resolution that feels like it's 
been brewing for a very long time. There's That's just good. so there's, much involved. There's a lot. There's just that was good. That was good. We'll we'll get we'll get into a little bit more about the the plot of this movie, the the structure. And for our clip, this go around, because there is so much going on in Magnolia, we're just gonna go with a trailer. Actually, yeah, I think that's the best. That's the best move. Here's a trailer to Magnolia. Then we'll come back. We'll talk about it. Perfect. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Spector. There is the story of a boy genius. Willa Catherine, Thomas Kidd, Jean Baptiste Clamoyer, and the game show host. I'm Jimmy Gator. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Bejar troupe of actors. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Donnie Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son. What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him. Do you understand? There's no one else. No one else. The caretaker. Hello. I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. Love you too. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So if you are this person, please leave me a message at box number 82. And this will all make sense in the end. So again, I know we've said this like three times, you know, this this is a long <laughs> movie and, and there are so many characters. And because one of the sort of reactions that that I've heard from people is that this is a very confusing movie and there are so many characters. And I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that. So I think what we're going to do for this first discussion is we're going to go character to character and then kind of like, you know, say who they are, say what the relation is, and then kind of talk about the actors and then work in some themes and stuff. So our first discussion is basically going to be covering all the characters that, that take place in Magnolia and what their relations are. And then hopefully um, just by doing that, it's kind of weird. It's like, uh, even when you, you wrote down your notes there of like all the characters, how they're connected. Yeah. It's somehow the second time I watched the movie, it was like a lot more comforting. So you can, if this, if this helps in any way, I think that's, that's awesome. You can think about it like a, like a tree. We're just breaking it down, like starting at two points, two different families and just branching off and just kind of have that visual motif right there for you. And then that's. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. So before we get into the characters, uh, we'll mm-hmm. kick it off with themes first, because there are a lot of themes in this movie. A big theme in this, I think, is failure, loneliness, mm-hmm. what you had mentioned. Everybody in this film seems to be on like the brink of struggle. Everyone's going through one of the more intense moments of their life. You know, generally in a movie, you have one character who's going through the most intense moment of their life. And then there's the fallout that the other characters are dealing with it or they're being supportive. But this is a film where you have every single characters going through some sort of like intense emotional um, transformation. And they're also like conflicting with each other. And so every moment of this movie is just like really, really, it's just like a fast heartbeat 
Yeah. Um, but I think that it's also what keeps the movie flowing and keeps it interesting. I, this is a movie of three hours and eight minutes, but I never get bored. This is a movie where everybody cries. Everybody's going through something. Everybody's realizing something and having almost an awakening or realization or, a, you know, for one of a better phrase, a come to Jesus moment. Something that is just the pinnacle of what their life has been at that point. And I think with Magnolia, there's a pretty big reason why this movie could be so relatable because we all go through days where it's just really intense or we're just going through something that particular day. And I think that that's another reason that this movie opens itself up to so much interpretation because with a movie like this, we want to empathize with everybody because everyone is going through something and they're all relatable ideas, you know, whether it's failure or death, loneliness, regret, or like the over, you know, like overwhelming theme of chance. There's a huge sexual dysfunction, you know, theme in this movie too. There are just so many ideas that you can, somebody, there. there's not one person that can't relate to one theme that's going on in this movie. And I think that that's another reason that it, um, opens up so much dialogue and so much discussion and also warrants people being like upset. Yeah. You know, well, let's try the best we can to sort of go through this cast, the, the, the cast of actors that played them and the cast of characters in the movie and, and their, how they intertwine. Um, maybe we'll kind of go back and forth here. We'll see if we can get through it. At least each one of these characters is interconnected to another character in the movie in some some way, shape, or form. The first character uh, we want to talk about is uh, Jimmy Gator. He's the host of of a show called uh, What, what Do Kids, Kids Know? Know, and it's sort of like the main one of the main stories of uh, the shows going on, and they're filming. You can think about it like the world, like the universe that all of these things kind of stem out of, and. Jimmy Gator is the host of this. One of well, main section of the movie is them filming an episode of, of the, the game show, What Do Kids Know? So Jimmy Gator is uh, portrayed by Philip Baker Hall, who I'll talk about in my pick of the week. He's the main star of Heart 8. He was also in Boogie Nights, and he definitely is one of the central characters in this, and several other characters' lives are connected to him. I think plays a big part in the movie, his character of, of being someone who's also at the end of their career, at the end of their life, who's having regrets. Seriously, who, at the end of his yeah. life, he's been diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, and we have two two main characters here who have been diagnosed with the cancer. So this is a, a cancer movie in some ways, not your typical mm-hmm. cancer movie, but definitely deals with those hardships. And so you've got Phil Baker Hall, who the host of the game show, and then the producer of the game, the game show. show who had been a producer for years and years is portrayed by Jason Robarts, who is on his deathbed in this movie. And he was also in real life had come close to dying from his illness, which he did pass away. I think before this film came out, if I'm correct. Yeah. And uh, this was definitely his last film role. And he, he, Jason Robards had mentioned that he had dropped, you know, like over 40 pounds due to his illness. And when this script came to him uh, from uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, who had kind of written it with, with him in mind, he thought it was very fortuitous that it had come to him at this point in life and was kind of like, yeah, it makes sense that I would actually do, do this part. So you have, so you have, uh, 
Philip Baker Hall, who hosts the game show, Jason Robarts, who's on his deathbed. He's produced the show all these years and, you know, has, has been like a big Hollywood producer, mm-hmm. uh, TV show producer. And then Philip Baker Hall, his wife, portrayed by Melinda Dillon, who you might have recognized from Harry and Henderson's or Close Encounters or The Mom in a Christmas Story. Mm-hmm. You know, she confronts him about infidelities. Then the story gets even more intertwined because, and their daughter, Claudia Gator, p- portrayed by Melora Walters. Melora Walters, who was in uh, Also Boogie. in Boogie Nights. She doesn't want to speak to her father, Philip Baker, Philip Baker Hall, because there's a insinuation that he sexually abused her. When he confronts his wife about this, it pretty much ends their relationship and ultimately makes him want to end his life. This this theme, oh yeah, how we get to that. And and hold on to that little nugget about Philip Baker Hall's character wanting to kill himself. We'll get we'll get to the climax of all of this frogs. movie. Yeah. The part about possibly him molesting her as a as a kid or I mean whenever that was insinuated to happen, it's so interesting to me. Because we're not, we don't know that right off the bat. And we just know that the first interaction that they have, she is so violent towards him. Just like, what are you doing? Get out of here. Get out of here. And as as the audience are like, why is she so mean to him? He's telling her, I'm dying. I'm dying. Why won't you talk to me? And it's such an interesting dynamic because... It's, I mean, it's set up like we don't really know who, if he did do this. And yeah. he, and when he is talking to, to Melinda Dillon's character, he's like, I honestly don't remember. And are we to believe that he really doesn't remember? Because Melinda Dill- Dillon's character is like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you don't and, remember. And that, and that is a very Paul Thomas Anderson thing that he does in most of his movies where we get this like very violent and explosive reaction from a character Mm -hmm. something that a character does some sort of motivation that we're not giving the information on why they're doing it till way later it's a mystery until he reveals like what the deal is and that that's something he does in like all his movies but certainly a lot in this film where we're not given the information right off the bat it's it's not a straightforward story you just kind of have to go along for the ride and take things for face value and then you know you're given a little bit information later on and i think that that is one part that adds to the intimacy of this movie and makes you feel like you're you are stepping into um this this particular day yeah. in the in this life and and you don't know you don't know what's the truth but you know through the man one scene that sticks out to me is much much later it's towards the end of the film and it zooms in like the camera zooms into a painting on Melora Walters wall that it's it zooms into um, a snippet that says, "But it did really happen." Yeah, and it, that sticks out to me so much because Paul Thomas Anderson just has a way of revealing the story piece by piece. Yeah, and you you make it up. You know, you make up like what's happening, but yeah. you kind of solve the mystery the further that the movie goes on. Well, and I think his approach to movies, uh, to me, sort of remind me, and and I can see, again, I can see why it can be off putting because in the movie. Generally, you're given information on characters as you go. Like you get the information on the character, yeah. then they have an explosive scene. He always does things in reverse, but his movies, <laughs> in a lot of ways, yeah. kind of like remind me of like if I was in a grocery store and I saw two people have this like explosive argument, you know, and then like that, you know, and then like they're escorted out by security, and um, I'd be like, man, I wonder what caused all that, you know, but I'll never know. 
but it didn't make their explosion any less interesting. You know, I mean, I was still like way yeah. involved, but Paul Thomas Anderson gives you that fight in the grocery store, but then he goes on and gives you <laughs> what, what what led up to that, that taking place. Yes, and yeah. that's why I think his movies are, I, I, I like his reveal information is, is part of the fun for me. Yeah. It's not, it's giving the audience credit to figure out the story. And the further that we go, I guess we should proceed on with the yeah, with yeah. the Jimmy Gator family story and kind of getting out of his family, that moving a- away from Melinda Dillon and Melora Walters, stemming off from the Melora Walters character who, because of her supposed sexual abuse um, and, and childhood trauma, she's become addicted. She's a total cokehead. And I don't know how many times we see her doing multiple lines in this movie. It's, you know, it's, it's caused her to be a drug addict and caused her to kind of engage in like kind of just miscellaneous sex that, you know, she's not really even caring or thinking about or whatever. And this leads to her introduction to the character, the police officer, Jim Curring, who's played by John C. Riley. He is introduced earlier in the film and we're going to get to talking to that a little bit later in the podcast because uh, he has some interaction with a character named Marcy and Dixon and there's another character that was cut out of the movie and Marcy and Dixon kind of seem incidental in the theatrical release of this movie but we're going to talk about some stuff that was deleted out of the theatrical release that might make some things make a little bit more sense but for right now we'll just go with the Claudia and Jim connection. So Jim gets to Claudia's and she's coked out of her mind. They have an interaction. Jim's attracted to her, which is kind of inappropriate for a police officer. Through their weird interaction, it's not really flirting. It's kind of like he's not really getting the fact that she's like on something and she's coked out of her mind. They agree to go out on a date at 10 p.m., right? They go on a, on a they're agreeing to go on a date at 10 p.m. that night. So they agree to go out on this date. The date doesn't really work out. She has problems that we've already talked about and he's kind of this dopey police officer and they part ways from there. They do come back together at the end, but that's kind of their nugget right in there and uh, until the ultimate climax for all of the characters in the film. So with the Jimmy Gator side of this, I feel like that's that in a nutshell and that we might need to move over to the Earl Partridge, Jason Robards character that we touched on earlier. And again, like we said, he was the producer of the what kids know TV show. Yeah. Again, keeping in mind stemming off of this game show, what do kids know? And so uh, there's three characters that, in the movie that his story kind of surrounds uh there's phil parma which is played by philip seymour hoffman and philip seymour hoffman is his caring caregiver caregiver and uh there's julianne moore who's and, his wife uh linda partridge and then there's tom cruise who plays uh frank tj Mackey, who's his uh son that he hasn't seen that he has like very estranged from yes and each one of these characters i think has like they're they're having like a crisis or they're having like a failure in their job which i think everybody in this movie like one of the themes is failure you know they're they're failing at something they do and for tom cruise's character he has probably the most i would say 
intense character out of everybody in this movie and his yeah. performance as well. Yeah. Um, he plays this sort of, uh, what would you say? He's like a... He's like a, 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 a not televangelist, but like a, a motivational speaker for to empower men to overpower women. Yeah. What it, his his mantra is seduce and destroy. Yeah, just total scumbag. We we learn to find out why he hates his father and what happened to his mother uh, in a very intense interview that he does with a woman uh, who his dick dug into his past. I'll say this about Tom Cruise and his performance. I, I, I won't defend Tom Cruise's real life, but I will say I think Tom Cruise is a fine actor. I think that he hasn't Agreed. done a lot of stuff post 2000, but I think that, you know, he did Eyes Wide Shut in Magnolia. They came out around the same time. And mm-hmm. this is a very, very bold performance. And this was one that, uh, one of the reasons why I admire Tom Cruise as an actor is that, you know, he's one of the biggest actors in the world, but he still seeks out upcoming directors. I mean, he still does that to this day with some of his movies. You know, he'll seek out upcoming directors. And he caught a screening to Boogie Nights and contacted Paul Thomas Anderson, said, Man, I love your movie. I love what you do. Yeah. I like to be in one of your movies. So this part was written specifically for Tom Cruise. But when Tom Cruise saw the part, he was pretty worried about the character, but he worked on the character pretty intensely with Paul Thomas Anderson. And he came up with some of the characteristics and some of the lines Mm -hmm. that I think are the greatest bits in this movie uh, were Tom Cruise's idea with him saying he's going to drop kick the dogs. And also (laughs) he, he, he he improvised the scene. He changed the scene where he's coming clean with his dad and why he hates him. And then the breakdown that he does, all of that was Tom Cruise. And I think Tom Cruise gives a really bold, performance i mean he's a character you want to hate but uh you know also a character that is so unlikable with at the end some somehow gives you a grain of redemption somehow gives you a grain of sympathy yeah yeah and you can see why this character is so damaged um philip seymour hoffman uh this is his third film with paul thomas anderson his character is a little bit more subdued i mean he's just a very caring person he normally plays like these sort of a-holes but in this movie he's just this very desperate caring person and he also has like a couple of funny bits where he's like ordering uh trying to order some food but then he decides to throw in some you know well, uh, throws, porn magazines he throws in the porn magazine so he can find possibly an ad yeah. for frank tj mackey yeah. because that's who's gonna be his Frank T.J. Mackey's demographic is going to be looking at yeah. porn magazines. So, but they're they're all interconnected. Not that there's have... anything wrong with porn. I'm no, just no. saying. Yeah, and then of course we finally have uh, Julianne Moore. If you want to take this one for me, man, I love Julianne Moore's character in that so much. Uh, so she is the I want to say like trophy wife that married the Earl Partridge, Jason Robards character initially for money. She clearly admits this in the movie. She admits it very early on to, I believe it's the family attorney. And as Jason Robards is dying and as he's been sick, she's had this moment of, of realization. And she's like, you know, I married him for the money. I married him, you know, for this and this, so I could get his money at the end. But now now that he's been sick, I feel terrible and I love him. I've fallen in love with him and I care about him and I don't want his money. And I just, I just, I want to be written out of the will. I want to do something. She's basically so messed up over watching 
her partner die that she's fallen in love with and has extreme guilt and she's cheated on him and Jason Robards character you know later in the movie also admits he's you know he cheated on his first wife as well there are all of these everyone all of the characters I mean maybe not all of them but a, a, a better half of them have a lot of these moments where they confess and Julianne Moore's character, you know, confesses that she's done all of these terrible things and she feels awful for all of the things that she's done. And she just wants to make it right before he dies, especially with the the will part of it. She is tormented over it because if she were to renounce the will, all of that would go to the misogynistic, terrible Frank T.J. Mackey, who's the only other person in the family that anything from Jason Robards, uh, you know, any anything from his estate would go would go to him. And she's like, no, he's the worst person in the world. I don't want anything going to him. So her character is really messed up. Um, she's addicted to pharmaceuticals and can't deal with death happening around her, can't deal with loss, can't deal with her own grief. And that is basically her character and kind of her character arc that all leads to her ending up. I mean, uh, we're we're going to eventually ruin everybody's um, ending and talking about this movie, but it, it, it leads to her kind of overdosing in a car and being found by the Dixon character that I said we talk about later. I guess with the Earl Partridge section, we could move on to the like final kind of uh, minor third section stemming off from this what do kids know world of this quiz show and that being the characters of Stanley Specter and quiz kid Donnie Smith so okay let's start with Donnie quiz kid Donnie Smith he's played by William H Macy he is the former quiz kid all-star smartest kid and, around and so just to say this show has been on the this show has been around for like 30 something years so in the 60s is when he performed on the show and now we're cutting to like hosted know. by Jimmy Gator yeah. at the time yeah he's been hosting it the whole time yeah uh, William, William H Macy's character was on the show as a kid yeah. and now we're cutting to like you and know, he won 30, like you know a million dollars yeah. or whatever and now you know and that's been that's been his life's his the biggest the peak of his life was when he was on the show as like a 10 year old kid and now he's you know we're, this is like 30 something years later and his life isn't going too well he works at um, is that a TV appliance like yeah. kind of electronic even, store? And he even got this job based on his like acclaim, his celebrity, you know, his celebrity, yeah, which is fading fast and and also he he was like struck by lightning, so he's like not yeah. he doesn't quite have the brain that he used to have. Along with not really being able to move past what happened to him, like kind of being this what so many kids in Hollywood deal with uh, I mean like celebrity kids that peak you know at an early age like a lot of them do end up in you know in drugs or yeah. like whatever and kind of like fizzle out um I I would equate that with the with the Donnie yeah. Smith character um with him the other subplot of him is that he's in love with and doesn't really know how to deal with it he he's in love with uh, this male bartender and has this obsession with wanting to get braces like this male bartender that he has think uh, this male bartender also has braces and he thinks that maybe if he gets braces that he'll love him too and it really plays into one of the 
you know, themes of kind of being lonely and being sad and just wanting love and wanting to give love and just not knowing how to go about that. So that's Quiz Kid Donnie Smith. And again, like everybody, they all have a climax at the end of the movie. But let's move on to the final main character, which is Stanley Spector, who is the child, ver- well, not child, who is the contemporary version of Donnie Smith. And the- he's been winning on this show for for multiple weeks. So this is, what do kids know? This game show, Current. this is right now. Yeah, this is right so now happening. So while this, this entire day, everybody's experiencing these lives, Stanley Spector is on the show. And I think Stanley Spector kind of represents, you know, everybody else in this movie is older and they've, they're sort of like, their lives have been, they're probably not going to change. They're like stuck in whatever life they've built for themselves. And Stanley's character could lead that same path. And I feel like his is the beginning where he's already finding dysfunction and unhappiness in his life. And he sees how, I think that this movie, you know, his character kind of represents that. He's like a prophet character. Yeah. 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 He's a prophet. And he, and he's, he's the most self-aware character of everybody in this movie at the age of like what, 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we're seeing the dichotomy of where people are, you know, the beginning and end of, of like a life and how you can fall into a pattern. And I think his character really strongly represents putting an end to a pattern, putting an end to of like, well, my life doesn't have to be this way. This could be the path I'm on and this could be like what I'm supposed to do because I'm good at something or whatever shows like the beginning of a life, the beginning of seeing dysfunction and, and, and being able to address it, to change it so that he doesn't end up like all the other characters in this movie. That's exactly it, Justin. I feel like Stanley, when we start to realize Stanley is getting money at an early age and his dad is not good to him. He is emotionally abusive. Stanley has the wherewithal to realize that this isn't okay. And it is in us being able to see how Stanley is treated, how he is shoved around and, and, you know, put in these situations where us as a viewer, we're like, man, this is not cool as a kid. This is not okay. We under, we start to understand that this movie, this whole opus of Magnolia is about parental and child relationships and the dysfunction that can happen within them. And the adult characters that we see, not, I mean, of course, not everybody, but a lot of the main characters we see, like Frank T.J. Mackey and the Melora Walters character, we see that they are the product of having really crappy dads for whatever their reasons. But Stanley Spector represents the beginning of that, which all kind of culminates like everyone else. Like we've said, everybody has their moment of realization, this rebirth at the end of the movie and Stanley's. Oh, I mean, I cry multiple times in this movie, but Stanley, I mean, we can get to this part later if you want, Um, But I I think the biggest theme in this is definitely parent-child relationships. I mean, we can can talk forever about, you know, death, loneliness, failure, regret, chance, love, all of these things, sexual dysfunction, everything that comes up in this movie. But the giant blanket theme in this movie is family, 
dynamics and family relationships. And once you start a dysfunctional pattern, how that continues, or once you have some type of childhood trauma, how that affects you and the rest of your life. And Stanley communicates to us that you do have a moment to stop that pattern when you're a kid. You know, like the Stanley character learns to stand up to his father who's been mean to him, learns to say, I don't want to be on this game show. I don't want to be just, you know, this is it. This is like the most important thing in my life, you know, because he doesn't even like what he's doing. He's doing it because his father wants him to do it, you know, because the producers want him to do it. Um, But let's uh, let's stop there. So that gives you like sort of the the idea of like, the themes and the characters in this movie. I know that was kind of long, but there there is a lot happening in this movie. And in hopes of breaking down these characters, like I think that this movie, if you take it character by character and how this all takes place in one day, this is a very complex movie, but it is very simple in some ways mm-hmm. too. I mean, it's simply exactly. a character study. I mean, in a lot of ways, this movie is just like a big soap opera, you know, that takes place <laughs> like, in one day. If, even if you, the interviews that I've seen with Paul Thomas Anderson, when, when someone's like, so what is this movie about? Like he almost chuckles or he does yeah. chuckle every time because yeah. you're like, I don't know, I could tell you whatever what happens with every yeah. character, but I think that that is the best way to break this movie yeah. down. Yeah, it is, because when you think about each character individually on that day, mm-hmm. they're, you know it's, it's pretty clean and it's very concise. Yeah. So that's a good place to stop there. We'll go to another clip. Uh, when we come back, uh, there's two really divisive things in this movie that we want to discuss. Uh, one is the whole scene with the frogs, the other being where all the different characters at different points in their uh, life are all singing to the same song as a montage to Amy Mann's Wise Up. But first, we're going to tell you about the character of Dixon, this little boy who has uh, interactions with John C. Riley. His character might seem somewhat insignificant or just kind of randomly thrown in there, but there was a storyline involving he and his father, who is a character that was omitted. Um, So we're going to tell you a little bit about that. So we're going to go to a clip with Dixon right now. Yeah, this is a scene where he's uh, rapping to John C. Riley and sort of giving significant things about the movie. But uh, some of the the things he mentions are actually about his dad that got omitted. So we'll go to that clip. You want to disrespect an officer of the law? I can help you solve the case. I can tell you who did it. Oh, you're a joker, huh? You tell me jokes? I'm a rapper. Oh, you're a rapper? Oh, okay. You got a record contract? Not yet. You the cool for the bus if you show me some trust. Have you ever been to Juvenile Hall? I ain't fucking with you. Hey, watch the mouth. Watch it. Come on, man. Just watch me. Watch and listen. Okay. Presents. With a double ass meaning it's I bestow. With my riff and my purple cheeto hit me though. Think fast, kiss me up, cause I throw what I know with the resonance. For your trouble ass, feed it in the wind yourself off of the back of the shelf. Jackass, crackers, body stackers, dick two niggas, master oh, pain, your Hold it, homeboy. I don't need to hear that word. Living to get older with a chip on your shoulder? Except you think you got a grip, cause your hip got a holster. Ain't no confessor, so buster, you better just shut the fuck up. Try to listen oh, and learn. Oh, 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 cut it, Coolio. I've had enough with the mouth and the language. I'm almost done. Finish it up without the lip. Check that eagle. Come off it. I'm the prophet, the professor. I'm going to teach you about the worm, who eventually turned to catch wreck with the neck of a long-time oppressor. 
and he's running from the devil, but the debt is always gaining. And if he's worth being hurt, he's worth being painted. When the sunshine don't work, the good Lord being a raining. Then that shit will, will help you solve the case. Okay, whatever that meant. Sure, it's real helpful, Ice-T. Did you listen to me? I was listening to you. I told you who did it, and you're not even listening to me. I'm through playing games. Be cool. Stay in school, okay? Get out of the street now. Move it. Dixon's character, I think, of all the characters in this movie can be somewhat confusing and misplaced because uh, his father was a character that was cut out of the movie. And you hear his father's name mentioned a couple of times. He goes by the name of Worm. But I think without that character, we have a hard time placing the relationship of how Dixon fits in this movie. And also, I'll, I'll kick it over to you, the character of Marcy, who is Dixon's grandmother. So this character of Dixon has always been really interesting to me in Magnolia because he kind of seems out of place in this theatrical version. And that might be because a, a section of his character is cut out along with some of the character of Marcy, who John C. Riley, our first introduction to him is being called to Marcy's apartment for a domestic disturbance. She's very volatile. And he, John C. Riley, subsequently discovers the body of a man in Marcy's closet. So we come to find out that Dixon is the grandson of Marcy and the dead man in the closet is Marcy's husband. So the person that's missing in all of this is the character of Worm, who's mentioned in the rap with Dixon and then in a little snippet kind of uh, like three times in this real short snippet where we understand that Marcy's being interviewed by police. But aside from that, we don't really know what Marcy or Dixon are both about and who is Worm. So the theatrical version of this movie kind of doesn't, like, they seem incidental. Right, Justin? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly, until I read this information about the Worm yeah. character being cut, I didn't know that Dixon was Marcy's grandson. Yeah. Um, so I think it is pretty interesting to throw in this little tidbit that Paul Thomas Anderson decided to cut out. And he says it was for time i mean the movie was already running long but i think it is important to throw in here because it does give a little bit more reason why dixon and marcy are in here so this is post frogs this is post everybody's kind of moment where they have this realization everyone in the movie not just marcy and dixon like everyone in this movie and there is this moment where marcy confesses and keep in mind she is not a main character in any of this even in this edited out version but I think in the overall idea of talking about family dynamics and about bad fathers and parent-child relationships I think the character of Marcy is very important for this little section that I'm going to her her dialogue that I'm going to read to you right now so this is what was cut out Marcy confesses to police and says, I killed him. I killed my husband. He hit my son and he hit my grandson and I hit him. I hit him with the ashtray and he was knocked out and I killed him. I strangled him. I strangled my husband to protect my boys. I protected my boys. And for me, like after I read that scene, even though 
it might not have any bearing on the movie as a whole when we're talking about this movie as far as having crappy fathers and how kids are affected later in life that we have this woman who stood up for her kids it kind of i mean it says a lot like to me reading that was like a really powerful thing yeah and and i'll I'll say this too like cutting out her reasons her character just seems like incidental yeah i mean she seems like she's just there to create a scene of introduction for john c Riley. um and you don't really feel anything for her you just think she's like this crazy lady that john c Riley interacted she killed somebody paul thomas anderson has said in interviews that you know he thinks the movie fits fine with the scenes that he cut out and the movie functions just fine to make sense but i disagree as a viewer who's watching it saying it is confusing with the character Dixon because personally you may as well just cut out the Dixon character yeah, exactly. because then you, <laughs> and then cut out the whole story and then have Marcy just be used as a function to explain how John C. Riley's character is sort of timid and passive and not have this like mystery of Dixon doing the rap and like explaining some of the plot yeah. and saying who Worm is because we don't know who Worm is. And I think that, you know, he cut out this whole section, these in- intertwined characters that I think would have been very fascinating and would have, like you said, sort of pushed that agenda and plot of like these crappy fathers who have, you know, abused their kids and how it causes all these dysfunctions in the second generation of characters. Yeah. Again, he cut out stuff because the movie was already running three hours and eight minutes. But, you know, I mean, like when you have a movie this big, if it warrants a running time, it warrants a running time. And you know that I'm a stickler on like, I hate these bloated <laughs> running times of movies. But a lot of movies, they go on for two hours and 40 minutes and it's 40 minutes of like action scenes that are boring. Like this is an intricate movie where you're, you're getting into like character studies. And mm-hmm. so it's just like, I'd rather, I'd rather like it go on another 20 minutes instead of not I don't even think it would have gone on 20 minutes. Yeah. It probably would have been like 10, maybe. But just understanding where his character's coming from and knowing yeah. that he's more of central to the plot. And, yeah. and and so, again, like that's why I wanted to put the the rap clip in there because I think that's a moment. And even John C. Riley, he, I think he says what the what an audience member's thinking. He's like, okay, whatever that meant kind yeah, of thing. Exactly. Like that didn't make any sense sort of thing. You exactly. Know? And, it makes you, and it makes you feel even like, okay, upon first viewing – you might not think about the character of Marcy or Dixon again, but when you go back and rewatch this movie, that's when you're going to think about why are they in this movie? Yeah. And John C. Riley's his reaction is exactly how you feel first, yeah. but that they had a reason for being in it is important. Well, and it like. makes more sense. Like get, knowing this information, that's the thing is like, I watched this movie without having read all this. And then as yeah. we did research coming to find this information out, when you watch it after hearing this information, yeah. The movie does play differently and it does make more sense. There is this very, very tiny scene where the police are interrogating Marcy and you hear the the name wor- Worm come up. And to me, that's always been a scene that was just like this fast flash. Like, like it didn't, you know what I mean? And there's so much going on. You just, that's always been kind of forgotten to me. And now that I know this information about the character of Worm, it, it, why not just cut yeah, out all but, of it? But yeah, but but now that I know this information, that scene makes a little more sense. But it's still that's the only thing about this. I think this movie is pretty straightforward, except for the omission of Worm and and his family members, and they kind of it it's kind of convoluted a little bit. And again, yeah, I think yeah, I agree. Like they should have just cut out the Dixon character, left the Marcy character in as a as a way to 
show where John C. Riley's coming from, but just leave it at that, not go back to this, you know, mystery. And, you know, it's funny that you say mystery because I think that there is some sense of mystery to to this movie in general. And yeah, keeping that in there, I'm I would definitely say that Paul Thomas Anderson would say, yeah, it keeps with that element of like mystery a little bit of this, of you like trying to figure it out. Um, like we've said before, there's a lot of things that you can are open to interpretation. Um, but this is just one of those things for me. I just, I, I just want to ask him like, why didn't you take all of it out? Yeah. Or at well, least the worm stuff. Well, and I, I, I've read some, some, you know, interviews with Paul Thomas Anderson where he's like, way far removed from Magnolia, like re- recent interviews with him when he brings up Magnolia. I think he himself, he, he said in interviews, you know, if I could go back in time, I would tell myself to chill the hell out and cut 20 <laughs> minutes. And I think yeah. if he cut 20 minutes, he would have cut out the he dicks probably and stuff. Cut out, yeah. I think he would have, you know, said, you know what, if I'm not going to tell the whole story, why tell only a portion of it? Well, uh, we need to wrap or talk up a Magnolia, but we don't want to uh, not mention two elements of this film that I think are the most controversial because they're the most out of the ordinary for a director to use Mm -hmm. in a movie. One is the raining of frogs that happens in the film, and the other is the use of each character singing along to Amy Mann's Wise Up song. And Amy Mann's songs all uh, all yeah. are kind of sprinkled throughout this movie. And Paul Thomas Anderson said that it was, you know, a song of hers that kind of was the initial inspiration yeah. for this movie. And uh, yeah, and Amy Mann, like she, her husband John Byron did the score to Paul Thomas Anderson's first film, Heart Eight, and then he did the score um, com- compositions to Boogie Nights. Which, you know, the scenes weren't weren't using popular music. And then Amy, Amy Mann did a song that closes out his first film, Heart Eight. So, you know, he had this relationship Again, with these two. Again, using the same folks. I, yeah. That's pretty cool. And uh, so we'll first start off uh, talking about the uh, very controversial Raining of the Frogs scene <laughs> yes. and kind of what that's about and, and why Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, there's a lot of mystery, I think, about why the hell this happened and mm-hmm. then there's a lot of talk about uh people have broken down like the religious elements in this um but i think a lot of it a lot of what you see in the movie came from a much simpler place um yeah. from the mind of paul thomas anderson all right so as we said one of the most controversial aspects or one aspect of this movie that that, that some people have a problem with is the reign of frogs that happens now with Throughout this movie, one thing that Paul Thomas Anderson does is give the weather forecast or current weather about, I think it's three or four times throughout. And in one scene towards the end, all of the rain stops and then a rain of frogs happen. A lot of people have opinions. A lot has been written about this rain of frogs. Here's what we're going to say. Paul Thomas Anderson's idea behind this is really that you can't really predict what's going to happen. That even if we do have this predetermined idea of something that might happen, there is still this unforeseeable future ahead, such as a reign of frogs. Now, there's also the uh, Exodus chapter 8 verse 2 
that is is uh, sprinkled all throughout this film. Here's what we'll say about that is that Paul Thomas Anderson has definitely admitted that he was unaware that this was a Bible verse or that this that the reign of frogs existed in the Christian Bible. He found out about it after the fact, kind of pretended like he already knew went along with it. But that chapter 8 verse 2, that 8 colon 2 is sprinkled all throughout the movie many times. But that was incidental. He threw it in just to be like, you know what? Just go ahead. Just go ahead. Just throw it on in there. We'll just sprinkle it on in there as if there is a different as if there is a deeper meaning. Yeah, he had like the production designers just yeah. try to hide as many eights and twos as they could throughout the movie. And while I, I kind of love that a little bit. It's it, I'm not saying that I don't like want a deeper meaning in a movie. That's awesome when it when something is in there that you have to dive a little deeper for. But I also just love that pure idea that everything is unforeseeable. This this whole idea of Magnolia is just the acceptance of this is what's happening. It's just like what the character of Stanley says in this movie like Stanley who is the prophet the one who has the ability to to stop any trauma or to 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 stop it in its tracks before it gets any worse before he becomes what the adult characters in Magnolia are he says as this reign of frogs is happening as everyone else in the movie is disturbed or bothered or bewildered by it it's this moment of acceptance, and he just says to himself, this is what happens. This happens. Just this acceptance of you never know what could happen. And the Reign of Frogs, it was something that the first time I saw this movie, it is kind of like, a, what's what's going on here? Like, And I, I can see both sides of it. I can see definitely be seen turned off by it, and I can definitely see trying to grasp for uh, explanations and reasons. And a lot of times, uh, you know, with movies, there's a simple fact of like a director, a writer director who wants to put something in that's like unique or interesting. And it's easy to, uh, find a lot of meaning in something that maybe isn't there. And part of the fun of analyzing films is Mm -hmm. finding meaning in things. And, and certainly like, Anyone who watches a movie, depending on where you are in your life or what kind of upbringing you've had, you, you can view or connect to a film uh, in a complete opposite way of somebody else. And that's what I love about cinema. I think The Reign of Frogs, to me personally, is in there because it's something that everybody in the movie is going to be drawn to. Everyone's going to experience it the same way because it's something that not anyone, any, no one's experienced Reign of Frogs. So like every single character in this movie is experiencing something that hasn't been experienced and it's all happening at the same time. And it is a way to connect all the characters. It's a way to close out the movie. I think it's a very smart device to sort of like put closure on all the characters because they all go through this experience together this sort of like crazy traumatic experience of these these frogs raining down that's like unexplainable and it like stops all this trauma all this sort of like everything that people's going on people's lives all the problems that they have is a reset yeah yeah and I i think it's a great device to sort of like close out the movie and end it because there is so much going on it is a good way to just like Bam, just like yeah, hit it's it. it's a hard reset, and it is the moment where 
these people, everyone in this movie, they face who they are. They face, there. there's no judgment. There's no nothing. Everyone is just facing the reality that they are being given or that they have ended up in. And it's kind of a, a beautiful, peaceful moment. I don't think that I said before the actual Bible verse, which is the Exodus chapter 8, verse 2, which says, and this is in the Bible, it says, if you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs to your whole country. So that's where this idea of this biblical idea comes from. Also, there have been a handful of weather patterns that have picked up legions of frogs yeah. and drop them on towns. It's so, never been scientifically proven, but people in other countries have said that they've experienced rain of frogs. It happened in an episode of X-Files. I'm talking about real life, though. I mean, X-Files isn't real life? Okay. Okay, I forget. There is another thing, too, with, um, with this idea uh, with the rain of frogs, and I think that this isn't even really looking too deeply into this or analyzing Magnolia, but this idea of chance and coincidence versus a preordained universe. There is a brief setup before like the movie of Magnolia starts of chance and coincidence versus a preordained universe. And I think that that is kind of something that is this, you know, theme all throughout the movie, uh, which is, which is, should be thought of all up until the end, you know, until the frogs and, um, you know, I think it's just something to still keep thinking about all throughout the movie. Absolutely. Well, one one final thing on Magnolia and another thing of, of you know, minor controversy is the Amy Mann song Wise Up is played in in the this is sort of like pre frog scene, but post <laughs> you know, we've we've learned about all the characters. Yeah. You know, everybody's gone through their stuff and then it's like sort of at the breaking point of all the characters. Uh, this Amy Mann song "Wise Up" starts, and then every single character is singing along to Amy Mann's song in the movie. And again, something that threw me off the first time I saw this movie, but now it's like one of the most emotionally driven scenes in the movie. And I think it again it works as a great device of not making these interactions with characters so random, like bringing them all together to say that they're all going through the same thing at the same time. They're not alone. in the fact that everybody's going through this and the lyric being, um, it's not going to stop until you wise up, I think is like pretty, uh, profound, you know, and, and, and really, uh, kind of hits, hits it there. I mean, it's so literal for the story, you know, and it's, and it's a simple thing, but it's, it is something that's like, you know, addressing, you know, the first step to solve a problem is like realizing that you have a problem and yeah. what that problem is. Yeah. And I can see how that scene is jarring. But again, to me, I love it because it's some, the same with the Reign of Frogs. It's something that that doesn't exist in movies mm-hmm. and it happens and it is uh, it's totally unique and it makes the movie totally unique. And I appreciate it for it. It's something that I probably didn't appreciate when I was younger, but I certainly now find it to be uh, quite refreshing. If I'm into a movie, I'm going to accept whatever you're throwing at me as that's the reality of the movie. Uh, that's the reality of, of what I'm choosing to sit through because this is the artistic vision. This is, this is the movie. Now with a Reign of Frogs, this is something that happens in the narrative, in the story. 
with the Amy Mann song, it's almost like if they were listening, if they were all happen, if all of the characters happen to be listening to it on the radio, that would be something that's happening in the narrative. This is something that takes us kind of, I don't want to say outside of the story because it is very much the story. I think it does. I I, I feel like it does take us out. I almost feel yeah. like it goes into like its own mini movie. It's like what what would you call that? Like the it, is it breaking a wall or something? Well, I I think it's like I think it's like a device that's used in musicals where like yeah. we break from the story and they yeah. all sing a song, but that song <laughs> is representative exactly. of like a plot in the movie. Exactly. It's similar but it's to not that. a musical. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it has a similarity to a musical. Yeah, exactly. But it's such a moment. It is such a beautiful moment in this movie. I can't help. I mean, I, I well up every single time um, this happens. I mean, I, I kind of well up yeah. a few times in this movie. What? But but this one specifically, oh, well, that that it's was rough. like we, you know, a lot of times <laughs> when we have the opportunity, we'll watch the movie together for the first time, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, when before we do the podcast, before we we'll, do the podcast, yeah. you know, we watch on our own and do our notes and research, but we'll try to just do a first watch with each other. Yeah. And uh, I think this is a movie where it's like, you know, we're kind of talking about the movie jib jabbing while the movie's going on there like it came that scene and uh it was three just and a like, half minutes of it was silence just like totally silence and at the end it's like good scene good scene Very, you know it's a good one you know i don't need a kleenex or anything for that one yeah no. gets me well uh, uh it's a big movie it's a big episode so we're, we've gone on longer than we normally do but uh hopefully you know, we've cleared some stuff up for the movie. It's certainly a different way of talking about this one. Yeah, it's, it's a it's in a very involved yeah. plot. Um, but I, I do like I, I. This is a movie. If you didn't like it when it came out, and you've only seen it once. Um, now that there's some distance between it, you know, it's 20 years old. There's not been a movie that I would strongly encourage a revisit of that we've done on this podcast in Magnolia. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think you will find. Um, you know, if you can go at it with an open mind and, and certainly after if you've listened to this episode, hearing sort of like the streamlined version of what this movie is mm-hmm. and s- some of the background information, uh, hopefully you can watch it in a different light if it was something that turned you off. And hopefully if you're a fan of this movie, um, I hope that we've presented a few things that, you know, were unknown to you. Yeah, I hope we've if, if you do like this movie. I hope you've appreciated our breakdown of it because it is a difficult movie to break down. But this is one one film that deserves a, a revisit. And I know Paul Thomas Anderson once said that this is going to be like his, the best film he's ever going to make. And I don't know if he's gone back on that, you know, since Yeah, I don't know if he's made like a recent claim of that cuz I I feel like some of his other movie latter movies have been more um, acclaimed but i don't i mean okay sure sure I, and i'm not saying anything negative about anything else but man few few times have i have i revisited a movie have i revisited a three-hour movie so many times in two weeks and every single time i don't even know how many times i put it's, yeah. it's basically been on constantly at my house and I love it more and more and more because there is it's so rich and whether it's through the visuals, the way that it's filmed, the story itself, it is just such a rich film that I I can't help but appreciate it more and more. Yeah, it's it's to me it's it's you know, it's not without its flaws. 
And, sure. You know, I mean, I think that an argument could be made. That you know it's, what? It's, it's humans are filled with flaws, Justin. <laughs> they are. And we I, you see know, that I, I th- all throughout Magnolia. I think an argument could be made that it, it's like somewhat bloated at times, but I think it's utterly unique. And it's it's there's not many movies that that come along that are that are quite like this. And I appreciate it for that, along yeah. with also loving the film. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's stop right there. We might have a final thought on Magnolia when we get done with. Uh, or other forms of business here. Um, <laughs> but let's uh, let's move on quickly to our picks of the week. I went with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's first film, Heart Eight. Yeah. Um, and you went with Chicago Cab. Can you tell me a little bit about Chicago Cab? Of course I can. I went with Chicago Cab from 1997. Uh, it's this episodic tale of a cab driver with a conscience. Based on a play called Hell Cab, which we already mentioned, by Will Kern and co-directed by husband and wife team Mary Sobolski, I think that's how you say it, and John Tintori, um, the story is a day in the life of this unnamed cabbie played by Paul Dillon. I rented this one as soon as it came out because it featured Gillian Anderson at the height of her X-Files stardom, and it also claimed to star John Cusack, Laurie Metcalf of Roseanne, and coincidentally three prominent players who later co-star in Magnolia, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, and April Grace. As this is a vignette type of movie storytelling, all of these actors have somewhat limited on-screen time, but it's engrossing because you don't know who or what story is coming at you next. Now, first off, this is a gritty, independent film. It spans all neighborhoods of Chicago, so if you're familiar with the city, streets, neighborhoods, that's kind of fun by itself. But secondly, and most importantly, you have to give yourself over to the idea of experiencing an entire day with a guy whose name you don't know, interacting with over 30 strangers getting in his cab, all in various life situations. Some stories are trite or what you might expect, like a lady in labor, a really mean person with car trouble, a guy complaining about Dylan's driving, and so on, and the story taking place during the heart of the Christmas season. Now, I'd venture to say that cab drivers in general in real life have some pretty interesting stories you'd never expect, so there really shouldn't be anything that's improbable in this movie. And interesting passengers make the work day go by faster I would imagine so this movie does move along at a fairly good pace. Paul Dillon does give a really good realistic performance as this gruff somewhat socially awkward but truly decent guy who can't help but be affected by each passenger that he picks up. His day starts off with a couple pressuring him to go to church with them at 6 a.m. He's witness to a drug deal. He buys this girl a cup of coffee who stiffed him on cab fare Um, constantly hearing people complaining about the cold. He even advises this this guy who got ripped off on a car. He even gets uh, fingernail biting technique tips. Um, A story about a cat being declawed, which is followed up by a story about a guy who who got his hand sawed off. So all of these like weird, random stories that someone might come in contact with, along with Of course, a few relationship turmoil stories that are all throughout the movie. And of course, there's some continuing tiny minute story that's only particular to the cabbie, and that is him battling this broken armrest that a passenger ripped off earlier that morning. Now, Dylan's earnest portrayal of this chain-smoking, coffee-slamming cabbie represents the audience. 
these strangers that will never see him again. And just like this cabbie, we experience these strangers out of context, no history, nothing to give us backstory to what they're about. All we know is the body language, the suggested comments, the drunken thoughts that ramble out of a stranger's mouth, the aggressive bravado from dudes that are just like talking sports, a fighting couple, a woman who tells our cabbie that she's just been raped, a man who's on a date who later confesses that he's a womanizer, and then there's a flirtatious lady who insinuates um, to our cabbie that she wants to take him home and have him ravage her. Like this cabbie, the audience serves as the voyeur, but the cabbie is this confessional, the anonymous person for people to be whoever they are at their core. Now, I read a little on how this movie was bagged on for having a lot of high drama characters. Now, while I feel that that's not a totally accurate criticism, it's those characters with a dramatic story that make this a movie. If it was just 90 minutes of boring passengers with nothing to say, no story, no interaction, who would care? I mean, there's a reason that that old HBO series Taxi Cab Confessions, which I loved so much, was edited together. And I'm sure that not everyone that gets into a cash cab is entertaining either. Now, Chicago Cab just condenses that. We just get snippets of all of these lives. Just as a quick side note... The soundtrack for this movie totally stands out. Bands like Supergrass, Pearl Jam, and Fu Manchu are just some that keep this box office sleeper going. The kind of dirty alternative jams really help alleviate Dylan's irritation during um, the long day of irritation and the uh, edgier that the character becomes. This was a really oddly marketed movie. It opened at the Chicago International Film Festival and only had a two-screen run, so it really wasn't a barn burner. The original um, title was the name of the play, Hell Cab, but it was marketed as this unsettling movie, and the trailer certainly insinuates that. But let me assure you that if you look up this trailer, it is nowhere near what it insinuates. John Cusack's section is about as scary as it gets, and that's just him being a total creeper and a well-shadowed backseat of the cab. The only thing scary about this moom is the cross-section of jerks that this cabbie runs across. But you know what? Work with the public a little while, and you may find that this movie rings a little too true. So if you are so inclined, seek out Chicago Cab. It's certainly packed with a lot of stories and, you know, quite a few celebrity cameos, which I wasn't able to track down how they all got involved with that. But this movie is very easy to lose yourself in. I almost, like, can't recall anything from this movie other than... I can understand how that would happen. It being all these, like, you know, little conversations. But I remember, you know, enjoying it. Like, it was, like, the height of, like, independent cinema in the 90s. It was. Yeah, it's... it's so I, I got to borrow this from me. I got to revisit I feel like anytime I've I've heard someone talk about it or seen someone review it or something like that, it's always been a movie that you're like, I didn't really know what I was settling in for, and then I just kind of got sucked in by it. Yeah. So why don't you tell me a little bit about Heart 8, because it's been a while since I've seen it. I'd love to. So I'm going to try to cram all this into one quick thing here. I can't wait. Um, so Heart 8... I wanted to do this one because I'm always fascinated. I've said this before. I'm always fascinated by first films of directors that have had like a, a really big career. And 
of all the films of that I've talked about, first time directors, this one kind of blows me away. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson was about 24, 25. So the genesis of Heart Eight was Paul Thomas Anderson did a short film called Cigarettes and Coffee that got into Sundance, was kind of a hit. He was invited to the prestigious Sundance Labs where they sort of nurture first time filmmakers. Um, so when he was there, they wanted to help him develop his short film into a feature, which became Heart Eight. The short film featured Philip Baker Hall, who is the main character in Heart Eight. He p- portrays a character named Sidney, who's sort of like a, a well-dressed gentleman. Um, in the beginning of the film, he happens upon John C. Riley, who's sort of like a loser down on his luck character. Uh, Philip Baker Hall agrees to help him in some ways turn his life around. He's going to help him earn some money so that John C. Riley can pay for his uh, mother's funeral. In the beginning of the movie, we we sort of get that Philip Baker Hall's character wants to help him. So he takes him to a casino. He kind of, Philip Baker Hall shows John C. Riley the ropes on how to make money at a casino and how to like do these sort of little, not, I won't want to call them scams, but ways to kind of bend the rules a little bit to make some money. And then we cut to two years later and we kind of see that they sort of have this father and son relationship now. Like John C. Riley really looks up to Sidney, the Philip Baker Hall character. And then we're only introduced, really, this is a very small film. We're only introduced to two more characters. We're introduced to the character of Clementine, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. She's sort of plays, I really love her performance in this, but she does sort of play the hooker with a heart of gold character. But there is some depth to her character. And then there's also the character of Jimmy, who's sort of this sort of hustler type character that works in out of casinos who befriends John C. Riley character. Um, Jimmy is portrayed by Samuel Jackson. And Samuel Jackson does a great job. You know, he was kind of he had a lot of heat on him. He was coming off of Pulp Fiction and this was a I think a role that was like perfectly suited for him. But anyway, they're, you know, much like Magnolia, these characters have these like intertwining relationships. Ultimately, the John C. Riley character falls in love with Gwyneth Paltrow's character. She has taken on a client that she has sex with, but this client didn't pay her the money. So John C. Riley gets involved, beats the character. They try to extort him for the money, contact his wife, say, you know, we're going to kill him if you don't get the money that he owes us but then they realize that their plan wasn't really thought through through very well and they sort of panic so john c riley calls philip baker hall and says i need you to help me out of this jam philip baker hall shows up and you know basically says you guys are idiots you didn't really think any of this through he helps them clean up the situation by telling them to go to niagara falls uh because they also uh let him know that they just got married they have loped and so he tells them to get out of town. He'll clean up the mess. So they leave. Philip Baker Hall cleans up the mess. But then the character Jimmy tries to blackmail Philip Baker Hall because he knows that Philip Baker Hall a long time ago killed John C. Riley's father. And it's at that moment, and like I said in the Magnolia discussion, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson does these things where he introduces characters. And in the beginning of this film, you're kind of wondering, why the heck would f- this Philip Baker Hall, well-dressed gentleman, help out this loser guy, you know, in the beginning of the movie. And it is revealed that, you know, he felt like this sort of responsibility to help him out because he's killed his father. And uh, Samuel Jackson basically says, I'm going to tell John that you were the one that killed his father unless you give me $10,000. And so, and he also reveals that 
Philip Baker Hall in his past was sort of this gangster. He was kind of like a hard edge kind of guy. And so Philip Baker Hall says, I'll give you $6,000. It's all I got. Please don't kill me. So he gives Samuel Jackson the money. Later on, shows up at his hotel room and kills Samuel Jackson and uh, calls John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow while they're on the honeymoon and says, everything's fine. You know, the guy that you guys beat up was in the hotel. He's totally fine. Everything's good. And then, uh, you know, it ends on him sort of hiding blood that's on his cuff. He's back at the cafe. You know, he's back at a cafe again drinking coffee. So this is a very small film. It's very subdued, but it's uh, it, visually it's very striking. Um, the cinematographer that had always, that has worked with Paul Thomas Anders, Anderson on most of his films. Uh, this was the, their first collaboration together. This is a very tightly structured film. Um, it's all about the dialogue. It's all about the characters, much like Boogie Nights and uh, Magnolia. And really most of his movies, it's not so much about the actions. It's about the characters and where they are in their lives. And it really digs in deep. It kind of just blows me away that someone who was like 24, 25, like wrote and executed this movie in the way that he did. Philip Baker Hall is amazing. Uh, Philip Baker Hall was someone who was always kind of like a really small character actor. I mean, you'd seen him as like the IRS boss and say anything in the 80s. He was a police commissioner in Ghostbusters 2. Um, but like he did one movie in 1984, he, it was like a one man show type deal that Robert Altman filmed. Philip Baker Hall played Richard Nixon and the movie was called Secret Honor. It's a movie that I have not seen yet, but it, the, you know, reading up on Hardy made me want to check that movie out, but that's the movie that Paul Thomas Anderson saw Philip Baker Hall in and, you know, he grew up watching him. So he wanted to. Uh, get him into the movie so he sent him the script that you know for the short film he ended up playing the same character in the feature and yeah he's just this is probably one of few movies where he's the main character and he's just he's so sly he's so intelligent I mean you just every word that he says and the way he says it is just you're there you want to hear every single like bit of dialogue and this being the first movie from Paul Thomas Anderson, he had a lot of problems. The stu- the the production company that that helped him produce the movie, they recut his entire film. Uh, they changed the title. Originally, the title was Sydney. Um, they said you're going to make it Heart Eight. Well, Paul Thomas Anderson was totally upset about this whole thing, and so when he went into Boogie Nights, when he had the script of Boogie Nights, New Line Cinema said they would produce it. He said, "I had this terrible experience on this film." Unless I get final cut, unless I can do what I want, I don't want to do it. And so they they were like, just take it easy. And he's just like, you don't understand, like this production company like totally recut my movie. So Paul Thomas Anderson was got his he got an advance on Boogie Nights. Uh so he had already had the script. They were already in production. And he talked, he recut his own version of Heart Eight, his version. He sent it to Cannes, it got in, and so the production company said you will we'll release your version of Hard Eight, but you have to pay for it yourself. So he's he took all of his money, his advancement money that he had from Boogie Nights. He paid to have the movie conformed and and made into his version. They said the only caveat is you have to still use the title Hard Eight because Sydney is just going to confuse audiences. So he said, fine, as long as it's my version, we'll call it Hard Eight. We won't call it Sydney, and so. That was the the history of Heart Eight, but again, uh, you can tell that he really loves this film. Uh, on the DVD that I have, you know, he's got multiple 
uh, director commentaries and you can tell that this is like his baby. Like he really, it was a frustrating experience for him, but, uh, in the end he really was able to do the vision that he wanted. And, um, I will say this is a movie it's, you know, if you're a completist like me, it's worth it to check out this movie to see the beginning of a filmmaker's career. And also, uh, just lastly, a very tiny three-minute scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman that is absolutely awesome. And uh, as far as I've researched, Philip Seymour Hoffman improv the entire scene. If you just Google or if you just YouTube Philip Seymour Hoffman Heart 8, I just, you should watch that scene. It's It's totally great. Um, so that's Hard Eight, Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie. That's awesome. That was a great summary of that movie. Thanks. I was trying to get in the summary. Also, the, there's so much behind-the-scenes stuff that really fascinates me. I, I know that, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson is really proud of this one. Man, I well, can't wait to revisit Hard Eight, though. Well, I can loan that to you. I've got it right here for you. But for you listeners at home, uh, both... Chicago Cab and Heart Eight are available for free on Tubi TV right now. And uh, we'll keep this going. Uh, here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? Flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Now, one of the strongest themes that runs throughout Magnolia is that of loneliness. And though the Murray brothers are so naturally comically inclined, Billy also built his career on that of playing characters who have a serious streak of loneliness running throughout their veins. Whether the characters he plays embrace this notion, rebel against it, relish in it, are consumed by it, or even defy it, Maybe one of the reasons Billy is so beloved is because the man can accurately portray one of the realist emotions that's so difficult to talk about. There is that little discussed subject of loneliness. That is a great taboo, isn't it? No one really wants to admit that they're lonely, but it is never really addressed between friends and family, Billy once told The Guardian in 2005. Now let's go through some of Billy's characters which best illustrate this idea of loneliness, but also point out the common thread among them, that they all have some hopeful feeling at the end, that maybe even through loneliness we find ourselves. Just like the players of Magnolia, you have to face the music in order to make a change. Now let's start with the Broken Flowers Billy. Now, Broken Flowers Billy, this is the Jim Jarmusch movie from 2005. Now, the Broken Flowers Billy hasn't ended relationships in the best of ways. He's broken hearts and left wounds, and in trying to find the son he never knew he had, he's forced to face the hearts of women he's hurt. Through this, his forever solitary heart grows by thinking of something outside of himself, the feelings of his exes, and quite possibly the idea of having a son. Now, Jim Jarmusch does leave it somewhat open-ended, if he does indeed find his son, kind of 
leaving his heart maybe full of longing. We're not sure if he did find him or not. Billy's left alone and with a lingering sense of something being unfinished. But after what he's faced and what he's grown, we know he's done leaving things open-ended in his life. And then we've got Lost in Translation. This is maybe the best example of a man lost, quite literally, you know, via in the culture of Japan, where the movie is set, his sad marriage that exists via telephone and a companionship with a woman with whom their friendship has an expiration date. I know what it's like to be that stranger's voice calling in, Billy has admitted about his character in the movie. It happens in acting and in business, those couples who are living together all the time and can guarantee seeing each other every night or weekend probably don't even know what I'm talking about. But it is true. Lost in Translation leaves us feeling hollowed out, but yet so full of something to give, wanting to make that connection with someone, even though we might not see that person ever again. You want Billy's character of Bob to find that feeling when he returns home, but seeing that is not what makes for a great ending to a movie. The absence of that resolution reminds us that we are, in fact, all alone, but you're never really dead inside. And one could even say the same thing about The Life Aquatic with Billy as Steve Zizou. Billy is a determined lone wolf at his core, trying to get right with this loss in his heart. Zizou is never physically alone, but there is a degree of loneliness that lingers. Even through his quest and finding this rare shark that ate his friend seems like a solitary mission until he's rallied around and supported and finally at peace when they find this dastardly yet beautiful beast. And then there's Scrooged, which is a play, of course, in the Charles Dickens novel, A Christmas Carol. Billy plays Frank Cross, a jerk TV exec who who hasn't known joy since the day the love of his life left him. He's become hardened, mean, and an ugly person. And with Dickens' Scrooged, at the end of the movie, Frank faces his metaphorical demons and leads him to this ultimate awakening, almost like a rebirth, a new man, a reminder of the good guy he once was and still is. And then there's Bob Wiley in Frank Oz's irritatingly fantastic film, What About Bob? On the surface, this is a stalker comedy, really, but let's look deeper. Bob Wiley is a man suffering from multiple phobias, obsessive compulsive disorder, severe anxiety, agoraphobia, dependent personality disorder, and all of this is the comedic version of the inner conflict someone with all these issues might really be suffering through. Bob's best friend is his fish. His previous therapists all have basically fired him as a patient. A guy like Bob is full of goodness, overcaring, and love. Bob wants to be better, he just doesn't know how. Of course, stalking his new therapist and family while on vacation isn't the best way to take baby steps to grow as a person. Sure, it's really weird, but Bob isn't a creep. He's just lonely. He wants to connect, but he doesn't know how to express it other than to insert himself into his therapist's family. Bob's not malicious, and he's not a jerk. And Bob's story is one of a guy trying to figure out that he can be a stronger person, face the world, and allow himself to enjoy life instead of being terrified by it. And I know I've talked about this movie before, Billy's Baby from 1984, The Razor's Edge. We watched this blissful, boisterous beginning of Billy's character, Larry, fall into being lost and alone after returning from war, affected by death and everything that comes along with PTSD. 
Now, Larry is floundering, quiet, contemplative, not knowing where to pick up after this has happened in his life. And feeling misunderstood and like he needs to find himself, Larry moves to France, which causes his fiancée to leave him, knowing that he's not going to come back to fulfill their cookie-cutter life she's always wanted. Larry goes on a mission of self-discovery. He goes across the continent to India through this series of solitary, meditative journeys, reads every book possible, and is more present in any interaction with any person he comes across. He's recentered. He becomes enlightened and has come full circle to find himself, but now a wiser and deeper version of who he was before the war. All right, I'm going to finally round out with his crowd favorite, last one here, Harold Ramis's masterpiece, Groundhog Day. Again, Billy finds himself as this self-centered jerk, Phil Connors, who is comfortable in his grumpiness. We all know the story. Phil relives the same day over and over again until he gets it right. Maybe the idea of loneliness doesn't jump out immediately, but Phil must be completely broken down, go through despair, anger, predictability, and the disconnectedness of experiencing the same day over and over. But once Phil decides to live each day to the fullest, to open himself up to others, to accept the idea of only living one day and really trying to enjoy it, Phil changes his his entire outlook on life. Now, it may have taken him 10,000 attempts at the same day to do this, but Phil emerges as a changed man. No surly demeanor, no pushing people away from him. Through being a broken down person, he's able to rebuild himself into a better version of who he was. Now, I can only surmise that Billy found himself in all of these characters, or he found something that was somewhat relatable. Whether it was loneliness or something else, Billy knows how to make us feel... For someone struggling to connect, someone who's been left feeling alone. I mean, the man lost his father when he was only 17, and when his mother died, Billy was in his 40s. He felt this ultimate sense of feeling lost, feeling orphaned, he said. Of course, we all go through these times of loneliness or feeling lost or feeling someone or or losing someone that we care about. Whether he draws on life experiences or is just a great actor, We're able to empathize with the whole cast of these Billy characters, all experiencing the same basic human emotion. And after all this dissection, I know I've gone a little long-winded. I really can't help but wonder, who would Billy have played had he been in Magnolia? It would be interesting seeing Bill Murray in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, much less Magnolia. I bet he could have. He could be in a Paul Thomas Anderson Uh, movie easily. I think Paul Thomas Anderson would write him a very emotional like heartbreaking scene. Yeah. Which I think Bill Murray is totally capable of pulling off. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. That was it jumped around a lot like some It was some a breakdown. Ones, but but I liked it. I liked I liked incorporating all the different characters that it was significant to Magnolia. I think uh that aspect of of his career has always kind of appealed to me like the adult version of me has always really appealed. Yeah. My senses. I I like some serious Murray. As much as I like the comedic Murray. Mm-hmm. Thanks again for that Murray moment. Of course. Um, did you have any final thoughts on Magnolia? I could go on and on about this movie, but one final thing that I think is kind of beautiful was the initial lyric inspiration for Paul Thomas Anderson, which was a Amy Mann song. The song's called Deathly, and Melora Walters' character 
Claudia says it to uh, uh, John C. Riley in the movie, but it's such a, a beautiful line um, that says, now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? It's such a beautiful line and how it's delivered in the movie is so poignant and heartbreaking in that scene. And I feel like so many damaged people that don't know how to deal with their emotions really can uh, relate to that line. With like so many things, so many Amy Mann parts in this movie. I mean, dang, the woman is all over this movie. And uh, yeah, Amy Mann definitely left her mark on this movie. Thanks, Paul Thomas Anderson, for making that possible. Justin, do we have anything else? I guess we should also say what's next on the upcoming podcast. Yeah, the uh, next episode we're gonna we're gonna take it way, way down south. <laughs> way down south. Way, down way down back. South. Way back to the seventies too. Far away from the San Fernando <laughs> Valley in Los Angeles. It's true. Um, we're gonna take you down to Kentucky to talk about yeah. 1972's Deliverance. Whew. And When's I'm, the last I'm time looking, you've seen Deliverance? It's been probably like four or five years. I've seen it fairly recently. Yeah, I but, probably saw it last year. Uh, you actually were the one that suggested this, and I got really excited. Like, all of a sudden, I started thinking about all the different <laughs> things we could talk about. And I realized that we've, you know, our podcast is like movies of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and we've really only done what well, we've got like how many episodes? 30 something odd episodes, and we've only done one 70s film. So. You know, we need to kind of get another 70s we've, movie. We've talked about some older movies. We have, Yeah, we but have, yeah. but we need to get yeah. another main feature main 70s feature. movie under our belt to kind of like, you know, qualify for talking yeah, about 70s true. movies. Yeah, it's true. So we'll be doing uh, John Borman's classic Deliverance. And um, I know this was podcast ran a little bit longer than normal, but I hope you've uh, hung with us. I hope you've got something out of our discussions on Magnolia if you want to uh, follow us on social media, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you want to reach out to us directly, you can always contact us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also check out our website, don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Um, Did you have any more final thoughts, Yeah, I had Justin? one kind of thing, you know, yeah. since you brought up Amy Mann. I was just, uh, like, one thing, you know kind of came across my mind especially having to do with the movie yeah okay so normally we don't sing on this but i just thought it'd be like kind of appropriate because of the music in the movie anyway hold on a second let me we'll close it on this but let me just hold, let me hit a button right here real quick It's not going to stop.